think we can dismiss our younger children to Children's Church. The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline and have that and follow that along. Before I forget, I forgot to do this earlier. Uh, every year, the folks from the Shepherd's Guide call and say, can we send you some of these? They're sort of a Christian phone book. And I'd say, yeah, we'll take five or six. And every year, I get a case. So I'm giving them to you. So I need some folks to come help hand these out. Yeah, enough for one for every family, I think. I was going to throw them out, but I didn't think they'd appreciate that, you know. Just. Yeah, they're kind of hard. It might hurt if you don't catch it. Oh. And there's plenty more if we need more. And you can have two if you want to, because I've still got more here. Need more? There we go. All right. How many I don't have to take back? We got enough? Okay. Well, with that little exercise out of the way. Oh, you still need more? And put them in there. Thanks. You want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. We'll start at verse 16 through verse 21. Okay, thanks. John 3:16 through 21 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come now to hear your word. We pray that it wouldn't just fall on deaf ears, 
that we would hear it, that we would understand it, that we would make it part of our lives. We ask that you would work your word in us. In Jesus' name, amen. There is an image presented to us in today's passage. And I think the image presented by the Apostle John here is that of a man in a dark room. All the walls are black. The ceiling is black. The floor is black. There are no windows. And the door is shut. It is absolutely dark. And the man is shut in there with no light at all. He has a cold, limited, narrow, mind-numbing existence, which is only what the darkness can give him. But he doesn't have to stay there because the door is not locked. And when God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, opens the door, a shaft of light beams into the room, and all the man has to do to respond to God's great gift of light is to step into the light. And God wants men and women to come into the light. God wants men and women to receive his love. God wants men and women to walk in the light. As the Apostle John wrote elsewhere in 1 John chapter 1, he said, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. But as we shall see, most men, most women, choose to remain in the darkness. They've gotten used to the darkness. They love the darkness and so fear the light. John wants us to remember that man has a problem, spiritual death and darkness. And he also wants us to remember that God has a solution, spiritual life and light. And you have this great contrast as presented here. God is calling Nicodemus, that's who's uh, being talked to here, and you and me and many others, out of the darkness and into the light. And he explains why with a hugely powerful concept found in an amazingly powerful verse. So let's see where that takes us. And we'll start with that concept found in verse 16, God loved the world. God loved the world. That's the first blank you should have. It's an interesting text that we come to this morning. If we remember the context, the situation from last week, Jesus is having a late night encounter with Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is rich, respected, and religious, a a leader among the leaders. He's at the top of the ladder. But he has been stunned by Jesus, who pointed out to him his need for spiritual rebirth. And the problem is that he, like everyone else, has to face the absolute necessity for him, Nicodemus, to be born again. But Jesus has also given him the answer, the remedy. He told Nicodemus that he, Jesus, would be lifted up and that only by looking to Christ on the cross uh, that one may believe and have eternal life. 
So Jesus has told him the what? Man has a problem. God has the solution. But now Jesus is going to explain to Nicodemus the why. Why is that important? And so we come to one of the great texts in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And not only does this verse contain the most well-known and best-loved verse in all of Scripture, the one you're most likely to see at a football game, but it also contains vivid images, images not only of God's immense love, but images of the difficult predicament that man finds himself in when he's faced with an eternal choice, the choice of receiving God's love for himself or rejecting God's love in favor of his own love for himself. And it's critical for us to realize as we come to this that God's love doesn't depend on our being good enough. That doesn't work. We can't be good enough. Rather, God's love depends not on what we are, but on what he is. God loves us because he's a loving God. There's hardly a verse in the New Testament in speaking of God's love which does not also speak in the immediate context and sometimes within the space of a few words of the cross. You very rarely read of God's love without also reading about uh, the cross. And how do we know that God loves us? Is because we're able to love one another a little bit? because the world is beautiful, because we value love? Not at all. We know that God loves us because he's given us his only begotten son, and it is in the face of the selfless, self-sacrificing son of God, Jesus Christ, that we learn of God's character. And since his love is a result of his own character, not a reward for our character, it will not cease. Not now, not ever. As the Apostle John wrote again, 1 John chapter 4, which our responsive reading this morning, he said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. He said, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So not only does God have amazing love, but he loves the world. And when John writes here, for God so loved the world, he uses for the word world, he uses the word cosmos. It's a word that's used 186 times in the New Testament, and it is always, always used with a sinful connotation. God loves a sinful world. The world is so sinful that elsewhere, the Apostle John forbids Christians to love it or anything in it. 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
So God loves the world, but John has written and told us we are not to love the world. There's not a contradiction there, although it may sound like it at first hearing. There's no contradiction between the prohibition of us loving the world and the fact that God does love the world. Christians are not to love the world with the selfish love of participation. God loves the world with the selfless love of redemption. There's a big difference. And as Nicodemus was hearing this, as he was confronted with this, it must have come as a stunning revelation that God loves the world. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, who knew all about God's love for his own people, but for the world, for Gentiles, for Nicodemus, this is one more earth-shaking, tradition-breaking revelation. Nicodemus knew that God loved Israel. That's clear in the Hebrew Bible. God had always loved Israel. But he must have been thinking, God loves the world, the Gentiles, the pagans, the Romans. God loves all kinds of people in this sorry old world. And that's radical news. And once again, we see Jesus stunning the religious leadership by tossing the equivalent of verbal hand grenades in their path, exploding dead faith and exploding rituals that have lost their meaning. And of course, as we've come to expect with John, this is another case of in with the new and out with the old. In John 2, we saw the tasteless water of the law replaced by the wine of the gospel. We saw the sacrifice of the animals replaced by the sacrifice of Christ. Earlier in John 3, we saw obedience to the law as a condition for eternal life replaced by the necessity for spiritual rebirth. And now we see that the love God has for his people is no longer reserved just for those in Israel, but is now made available to the world. We have a God who loves all people everywhere. But not only did God love the world, God gave the world a gift. It is the very nature of love to give the best and not to hold anything back. And God gave his best, his unique and beloved son. He gave his son. For those of you that are fathers and have sons, think of how difficult that phrase is. I'm sure it would apply to all children and all parents. We say that like we're very used to it, like it was easy or simple. God gave his son. And once again, we're reminded there's nothing we can do to earn our own salvation. If we have to earn our salvation, then it can't be considered a gift. To accept a gift, all you have to do is receive it. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So not only did God love the world, and not only did God give to the world, but it's clear that God sent to save the world. Two blanks there. God sent to save the world. Verse 17, 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus Christ was sent on a mission to be the Savior of mankind. He wasn't sent to condemn the world. That wasn't necessary because the world, in its unbelief, had already condemned itself. He didn't come into a neutral world in order to save some and condemn some. He came into a world that was lost and dying, a world that stood condemned already by its failure to believe. It was to this world that Christ was sent to save some, to be lifted up on the cross that whoever looked to him in faith and believed in him would be saved and would receive eternal life. And the last part of this section, verse 18, brings home to us that salvation is a matter of faith, a matter of belief. John hammers this home by the use of repetition. He emphasizes the point by the simple device of repeating it over and over and over. Verse 18 reads, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And the verb believe is cursed three times, and the thought is hammered in. Believe, believe, believe. That's the important thing. It's believing that matters. However, like the man in the dark room, men love the darkness. Verse 19, men love the darkness. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Look at how this verse starts. And this is the judgment. To love the darkness instead of the light is in and of itself judgment, condemnation. See, even today, the attainment of our aims, the achieving of our goals is often our own condemnation. We set out to do something and we succeed at it, often not realizing it's simply our own form of darkness. It's just something that we've placed in our lives that's more important than Christ. And we do that in profound ways and big ways, with careers and jobs and school. And we do it in just small and very simple ways. Think of times you've invited someone to church. Rarely do they have some big, huge, profound thing going on. Often it's simple. You know, thank you very much, but I doubt that we'll be able to make it. And when you ask why, you reply something to the effect of, well, I got a lot of work to do. You know, the house needs painting and I've got to paint it and there's, there's no garden and I've got to plant it and there's no storage shed and I've got to build one. And the only day I have to do things like that is Sunday. And so that man who says those things has put his house before God. And the price that he puts on his soul is a garden, a storage shed, and a couple buckets of paint. When we put something before God, whether it's profound or simple, we're loving the darkness. And by so doing, we're condemning ourselves. And not only do men love the darkness, but men hate the light. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. We're talking about people who are in a continuing state of unbelief. 
We're talking about the person who refuses to accept that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of the world. And unbelief is the atmosphere in which he lives. He knows that Christianity is a way of life for some other people, but for him, it's irrelevant. He knows that Christians talk about faith, but for him, that's just a word. Simply not interested. And he certainly doesn't know what it means to trust in the sense in which Christians trust Christ. For him, that's totally unknown territory. So he lives in unbelief, continuing unbelief. He wants nothing and gets nothing. Unfortunately, sad to say, sometimes we who know better keep him company. A lot of times the Lord is calling us to stand up for him in the middle of a lost generation that's all too often materialistic, secular, racist, insensitive, unloving, sexist, sensual, and just plain selfish. And all too often we simply go our own way. We choose our particular piece of darkness and love it so much we hate to come out into the light of Christ. And we know better. Men love the darkness and hate the light because they fear salvation. They're afraid of their past. Somehow it comes along that you have to repent of sin. And who wants to admit sin? They'd rather suffer at the hands of God for eternity than be embarrassed now by letting the light shine on their evil deeds. And they run from exposure because the light reveals the sin. And they can't bear the thought that their deepest, darkest secrets might become known. And very rarely is it an intellectual problem of understanding the gospel. It keeps people from Christ. Usually it's a moral and spiritual blindness that keeps them loving the darkness and hating the light. An obvious case in point is Nicodemus' friends, the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the Levites, the scribes, the rabbis, the teachers. When Jesus Christ came, he was so much better than they were that next to him their goodness looked tarnished like Christmas tinsel in February. So they hated him. The end result was they preferred to have him killed and removed from sight rather than expose the corruption that was in their hearts and have him cure them of it. And it is no different today. It's no different today. Francis Schaeffer writes of talking with a philosopher in the late 1970s. And he convinced this man intellectually of the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ really was God's son and that he really did die for sinners and that he really did rise again from the dead. But the man still refused to believe. And finally he said, okay, I accepted his truth, but so what? I don't really care. I don't want to believe. And there was nothing else for Francis Schaeffer to say. And he writes about, I won the argument, but I lost the battle. The man didn't want to believe. And he was forced to admit, in a manner of speaking, that he loved the darkness. So what are we to do? 
We're to live by the truth. We, we must live by the truth. Verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So it must be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. The verse says if we live by the truth, if we do what is true, then we will come into the light. And who is the light? Christ. The one who said, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Nicodemus has spent his whole life studying and teaching the word of God, but now he comes face to face with the word of God and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus told him, you must be born again, pressing home to Nicodemus his need. And then he said, so must the son of man be lifted up, pointing Nicodemus to the remedy. And according to John 19, it appears that Nicodemus, upon seeing Christ on the cross, did in fact turn to him, and by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and looking to him in faith, received salvation. See, there's only two alternatives. Belief or unbelief. If you believe in Christ, you will not perish but have eternal life. The alternatives are clear. Live forever, die forever. Christ came to save and bring new life. He teaches us that those who believe in him experience new birth and receive eternal life and are saved. But the other alternative is to perish, to lose one's life, to be doomed. There is no third option. We're either going to die in the darkness of our sin or we're going to live in the light of our Savior. The prophet Isaiah warned Israel back in Isaiah 45, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And the apostle John pleads with us now, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And nothing has changed. The darkness, in fact, is increasing As Tolkien said of Middle-earth in The Lord of the Rings, the land is covered in shadow. And that's true. Today, this month, we're facing an onslaught from the new atheists. From the new atheists. 2006 has been a big year for atheism. There's been a release of several major books. This is going to get a little... uh, complicated here, but I know you guys are really smart, so you can listen and and follow along. There's been a release of several major books widely uh, touted in the media that put atheism on the front lines of the current cultural conversation. Books such as Richard Dawkins, he's a professor at Oxford, wrote the book The God Delusion. Daniel Dennett's book, Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon, and Sam Harris's two books, The End of Faith and Letter to a Christian Nation. Unless you think nobody's reading this, they've all made the New York Times bestseller list. And they're selling by the thousands. And they're prompting hours of conversation on college campuses and in the media, and more are coming. According to the uh, recent issue of Time magazine, we can expect to see in the coming months the book Six Impossible Things Before Breakfast by uh, Lewis Wolpert, a biologist who's a self-described 
atheist, reductionist, materialist. Of course, religion is the first of those impossible things. We're going to get the book by Victor Stenger, a physicist astronomer, coming out with a book entitled God, the Failed Hypothesis. And meanwhile, Anne uh, Druyan, who's the widow of Carl Sagan, the kind of arch-skeptical astrophysicist, she's edited his unpublished lectures on God and his absence into a book that's uh, coming out due this month called The Varieties of Scientific Experience, which is a play on William James' famous book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. And now, Wired Magazine. Cover story on atheism. The new atheism. Contributing editor Gary Wolf explains this in in a little tagline under here. No heaven, no hell, just science. Inside the crusade against religion. Now, Wired Magazine is itself a cultural symbol for the growing centrality of of technology in our life. And it's not just a celebration of uh, emerging technology or a catalog of soon-to-be-released marvels. The magazine consistently offers significant intellectual content and takes on many of the most controversial issues of our time. And considering the young readership of uh, this magazine, its target is actually men in their 20s. That's the target of Wired Magazine. You think their decision to put atheism on the cover indicates something of where they think society is headed. And the writer, Gary Wolf, actually accomplishes a great deal in the article. It's a very long article. Um, And it gets pretty dense at times because it's dealing with all these scientists. But he introduced the work of militant atheist scientists such as Dawkins, Harris, and Dinette, who are the authors of those books. And he probes into the meaning of the new atheism as a movement and as a message. And he gets right to the point. Now, he writes as an acknowledged agnostic. He's trying not to take sides, and he says that right up front. But he says, right at the beginning of the article, the new atheist will not let us, meaning him as an agnostic, will not let us off the hook because we're not doctrinaire believers. They condemn not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. Religion is not only wrong, it's evil. That's what they say. And actually, if you get into the books, that's really mild. In order to understand the new atheism, he visited with these three authors. And the interviews are fascinating, illuminating, very analytical. Dawkins, the first one, his book, The God Delusion, reached the bestseller list and has been there. And he's been in the media uh, from uh, the New York Times to Comedy Central. And uh, he's really unique. And Wolf understands him. It's not so much that Dawkins is attempting to convince believers that they should no longer believe. He's actually trying to make a very different cultural and political move. He wants to to make respect for belief in God socially unacceptable. So it's not just that you're a believer, but if you even respect believers, that 
would be socially unacceptable. He says Dawkins is perfectly aware that atheism is an ancient doctrine and that little of what he has to say is likely to change the terms of this stereotype debate. But he continues to go at it. His true conversational targets are not the Christians he confronts, but the wavering non-believers or quasi-believers among his listeners, people like me, Gary Wolf, potential new atheists who might be inspired by his example. For a man who's supposedly, uh, you know, the humble uh, and an exemplary uh, uh, person, scientist, and the humble discipline of science where you check everything out first, he's capable of breathtaking condescension. Here's one of the couple of things that Dawkins says in his books. Highly intelligent people are mostly atheists. See, earlier I told you you were smart. He would disagree. Not a single member of either House of Congress admits to being an atheist. Doesn't add up. Either they're stupid or they're lying. And I think they're lying. And they have a motive for lying because everyone knows that an atheist can't get elected. So every elected politician in the nation, practically, is now a liar. But it's a small piece of a long argument that says intelligent people are atheists. And if you're not an atheist, you're not an intelligent person. And he says it very bluntly. He really um, doesn't care what people think about him. He has no regard for, uh, you know, sort of political correctness. And he's an evangelist for atheism. He writes, Dawkins does not merely disagree with religion. He disagrees with tolerating it. He goes on. He thinks the children of Christians should be taken away from them. It ought to be illegal for any child to be enter any house of worship before he's a teenager. And for those of you who homeschool, he thinks not only should we take your children away, but we should put you in jail and throw away the key. I think it's Dawkins who calls you intellectual assassins. Those are really strident words for a guy who's fairly mainstream and shows up in the New York Times and the Washington Post and Time Magazine. It's amazing that anybody can uh, articulate and get away with it today. We should take all the Christians' children away. And yet that's what he says. It's in the November 13th issue of Time. And there's no outcry. Everybody's saying, you know, I really don't think that's a good idea. I mean, it sounds like Germany in the late 1930s. But I think he's saying what a lot of other atheists think. What if they hold to their position, what they must think. And he really doesn't care about the public relations. The next guy is Sam Harris. He argues mostly against religious moderates and liberals because they enable those of us who are fundamentalists and orthodox and evangelicals. And he says that he opposes the agnostics and opposes liberal believers as those who help the orthodox believers retain a cultural power base. And he says they confuse rather than clarify the issues. Well, we agree on that part. But he argues... Sam Harris, written in his book, unless belief in God is eradicated, civilization will end in a murderous sea of religious warfare. As, you know, none of these people deal with what science and te technology have brought to warfare. They see science and technology as the savior. 
And as one reviewer said, I'd be happy to trade the Inquisition for chemical warfare any day. But he proposes a religion of reason. He says, we realize the rational means to maximize happiness. We may agree we want to have a Sabbath that we take seriously, a lot more seriously than most religious people take it. But it would be a rational decision and not just because it's in the Bible. I have another part he says about prayer, but there are just too many bad words in there to repeat. But he says, his prayer, what, what he has in there is, our reason would subjugate our superstition, our intelligence would check our illusions, and we would be able to hold at bay the evil temptation of faith. Number 14 on the New York Times bestseller list. It's not like this isn't out there and a lot of people aren't reading it. He has sold thousands of books. And he says his goal is that at some point there will be enough pressure that it will be far too embarrassing to believe in God. That's his goal. The third person is Daniel Dinette. He's a professor at Tufts University outside of Boston. Another evangelizing non-believer. And he gives no quarter to those who resists subjecting their faith to scientific evaluation. He thinks every religion should be mandatory in school and should be subjected to the most rigorous uh, scientific uh, evaluation. He says, specifically referring to Christians, if you hoodwink or blindfold your children to assure, ensure they confirm their faith when they're adults, your faith ought to go instinct. Implying that, of course, we hoodwink or blindfold our children. But the amazing thing is you get to the end of this article that just has page after page of this. And if you look at their books, it's just phenomenal how strident and how hateful they are, particularly towards Christians, but against all religion in general. But then you get to the end of the article and Gary Wolf, the author, who's an agnostic, says he's really not comfortable with these guys. I mean, he's their target. They're the guy they're trying to reach. He says they have castigated fundamentalism and branded even the mildest religious liberals as enablers of a vengeful mob. And everybody who does not join them is an ally of the Taliban. But it has failed to take hold. And given all the religious trauma in the world, I take this as good news. Even those of us who sympathize have good reason to wish the new atheists continue to seem absurd. If we reject their polemics, their debate, if we continue to have respectful conversations about things we find ridiculous, this doesn't mean we've lost our convictions or our sanity. It simply reflects our democratic values. Or you might say our bedrock faith that no matter how confident we are in our belief, there's always a chance we could turn out to be wrong. And the fact that the author of the article, Gary Wolf, remains unconvinced by the arguments promoted by the new atheists is itself significant. Because what they're demanding, Dawkins, Harris, and Dinette, is that society must place itself in the hands of a new and militant atheistic priesthood. Science, as defined by these new priests, would serve as the new sacrament and the new means of salvation. Now, I read that article, and I read the follow-up article, God versus Science and Time, which actually has a debate 
between Dawkins and a Christian scientist named Francis Collins. And it's amazing because Dawkins is just mean and Collins is amazingly gracious to him. And I'm tempted to hit him by some of those things. And Collins obviously has much more self-control. And Besides, Time Magazine was there and recording everything. But as I read those articles and looked at those books, my first thought was these articles are really about the revenge of modernism. And I think that's their fatal flaw. They're modern, modernist arguments in a postmodern world. And I don't think it will hold. But that's philosophical. But my second thought was these guys describe what the Apostle John is writing about because I was working on this sermon. They're the perfect example of loving the darkness and hating the light. They make it very clear what the two alternatives are. Remember, John said, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And this is the judgment, light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. And these guys describe that passage. Remember, man has a problem, spiritual death and darkness, and God has a solution, spiritual life and light. And God is calling you and me and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Daniel Dinette out of the darkness and into the light. Here in John chapter 3, God is calling Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is one of those, remember, he came under the cover of darkness. He's coming into the light. He had come as one theologian to another to talk about spiritual things. But he's left as we are left, face to face with judgment. With the two alternatives of life and death, light and darkness, and the final reminder that it's only he who does what is true who comes to the light. And it makes it very clear that theology is, after all, very serious business. Life and death, light and dark, belief and unbelief. And so the question that Nicodemus is left with, the question that I'm left with after reading all these guys, the question that you're left with after reading the Apostle John is, what is it that you really believe? What is it that you really believe? Think about that. And let's pray. Take a moment to pray and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, we're not often confronted with just how stark the alternatives are. We like to live in the middle, in gray area. We want to please people on every side. And yet your word calls us to very specific things, faith in Christ, and to leaving the darkness and coming into the light, and to choosing life instead of death.
And we realize that these are big, serious things, that this isn't a minor issue or a minor matter, that if we believe, we're not condemned. And if we don't believe, we're already condemned. And Lord, we, we often act. We say we believe, but we often act like we don't or we're unsure and we're unwilling to commit and we don't go one side or the other. We want to play it safe in the middle and you're letting us know there is no safe middle. Father, if we believe, we will be attacked. And yet you call us to believe. You call us to faith. And so this morning, my prayer is that you would give us the faith that we lack. That you would give us this gift of believing, even if we don't fully understand everything that you would lead us into understanding, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, it's your spirit that makes that happen in us. It's clearly not the power of our intellect which would lead us astray. And so this morning, I plead for faith for each one of us here that you would give us the faith to look to Christ on the cross and that we would believe and that we would see Jesus once again. I ask that you would do this for each one of us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.